Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and violence that people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Albert Anastasia didn't like to talk. Whether he was passing by neighbors on the streets of Brooklyn or sitting in a conference room across from a lawyer, the 49-year-old mobster hated chatter. But what he hated even more was if another guy talked. Anastasia despised rats, all of them, even if the person who ratted had nothing to do with him, like, for example, amateur detective Arnold Schuster. In February of 1952, Schuster spotted Willie Sutton, a wanted bank robber out and about in Brooklyn. Schuster quickly informed a nearby police officer, and before long, Willie was apprehended. Upon hearing about Willie's arrest and the man who'd ratted him out, Albert Anastasia was enraged. He turned to one of his underlings and said, I can't stand squealers. I want Schuster hit. On March 8, 1952, Arnold Schuster was shot four times, once in each eye and twice in the groin. The cops never found the culprit. Rumor has it that Anastasia might have pulled the trigger himself. He hated rats that much. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. This is our second episode on notorious mafia boss Albert Anastasia. During the 1930s, he was the leader of Murder, Inc., the mafia's crew of contract killers. But after World War II, he shot his way to the top to become the boss of one of New York's five families. Last week, we followed Anastasia as he transformed from lowly dock worker to the mafia's most violent killer. But his rise was stalled when mob-busting initiatives put an end to Murder, Inc. in the early 1940s. This week, we'll see how Anastasia's brutal ambitions were reborn after the war, and how once Anastasia claimed his seat at the top of organized crime, he thought he'd be more unstoppable than ever. He couldn't have been more wrong. Coming up, we'll dive into the downfall of Albert Anastasia. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. When America entered World War II, Albert Anastasia thought that law enforcement might finally forget about him. And for a time, they did. Partially due to the fact that Anastasia wanted them to think he was a proud American patriot. During the war, the 39-year-old killer enlisted and worked as a longshoreman instructor at Indian Town Gap Military Reservation in Pennsylvania. On November 22, 1944, he was honorably discharged after 28 months of service. With the war over for him and the cops seemingly off his back, Anastasia knew it was time to enjoy the good life. He moved to Fort Lee, New Jersey with his 29-year-old wife Elsa and their two children. Once there, he decided to settle down and build the house of their dreams, a white stucco Italian-style mansion on 1.3 acres of land. Of course, settling down for Anastasia had a liberal meaning. Following his return to civilian life, Anastasia bought into a clothes-making business called Madison Dress Company. Since the factory was based in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, about 150 miles from Fort Lee, Anastasia knew he needed one of his guys to be there in person. So he brought in Jack the Dandy Parisi, a Murder, Inc. assassin, to make it look like everything was on the up and up. Of course, Anastasia wasn't committing himself to a life of legitimate work. While he appeared to be living relatively quietly in New Jersey, Anastasia was still pulling strings at the Brooklyn waterfront. And to help him, he recruited two of his brothers, Tony and Gerardo, nicknamed Bang Bang, to help run the docks on his behalf. Like their older brother, Tony and Bang Bang had a long history of working as longshoremen. And also like Albert, they had enforcers working the docks so that they wouldn't get caught up in any of the trouble they themselves were orchestrating. Bang Bang, for example, never showed up to any International Longshoremen's Association meetings, despite being on their payroll. He had an ILA associate make sure that he still received a check, even though he was a no-show. Both made a killing off of stolen merchandise, bribes, and shakedowns. The Anastasia brothers had always been a force to be reckoned with, and as the 1940s came to an end, the future was set for a new decade of expansion and wealth. But what Albert Anastasia wasn't counting on was a new wave of mob-busting initiatives to sweep the country. When World War II ended, the US government and law enforcement agencies had reshifted their focus to organized crime. The most prominent effort to take down the mafia came in the spring of 1951, when the Kefauver Committee was at its peak. Senator Estes Kefauver of Tennessee was one of the first politicians to openly talk about dismantling organized crime across the United States. Kefauver's committee, the Special Committee on Organized Crime in Interstate Commerce, 
went on a multi-city tour across the country and interviewed any criminal associates they could find. The grand total would be over 600 televised interviews. The central goal of the committee was to finally bring to light the truth of the Mafia's existence. For years, organized crime was an open secret, and with each passing year, the Mafia gained more influence over labor racketeering, which could potentially bring interstate commerce to a grinding halt. The hope was the committee's findings would lead to new initiatives for the federal and or state government to combat organized crime and eventually put as many of them behind bars as possible. Once Kefauver came to New York, the men of the five families got nervous, all except for Anastasia, who seemed to possess an eerie confidence. Despite being one of the mob's most notorious members, Anastasia felt secure that law enforcement had no physical evidence against him. In the past, Kings County District Attorney William O'Dwyer had failed to indict Anastasia, even though it was the public knowledge that Anastasia was the leader of Murder, Inc. Some have suggested that O'Dwyer's inability was due to the all-encompassing political corruption throughout New York. O'Dwyer did testify at the Kefauver hearings and insisted that the Mafia hadn't influenced his decisions in any way. To this point, he went out of his way to reprimand Anastasia, telling the politicians on the committee that Anastasia was head of the mob secret police and needed to be held accountable. He even proclaimed that a decade earlier, he had a perfect case against Anastasia. But when his star witness, Abe Rellis, fell out of a building, the case died with him. O'Dwyer stressed that there was nothing he could do after that. Perhaps that was true, but the committee seemed to be proving that there were now plenty of potential witnesses to choose from if O'Dwyer really wanted to see Anastasia behind bars. Yet despite the new information the committee was able to gather, there was still a host of mobsters taking the fifth. Lifelong mobsters like Albert Anastasia were well-versed in keeping quiet. Nevertheless, the Kefauver committee was relentless. And before too long, they were able to uncover quite a lot about Albert Anastasia. From his own brother. In trying to find a way to decommission Anastasia, the committee went after the rest of the Anastasia family. In April of 1951, 45-year-old Tony Anastasia was questioned about how he and his brothers came to America. Tony answered that they came over by boat. When pressed further, he admitted that most of the family had jumped ship. It was now on record that they had come into the country illegally. The committee's angle in asking this particular question was to find a way to deport the family back to Italy. And Tony had given them exactly what they needed to begin building a case. The spotlight was shining directly on Anastasia. The smart move would be to lie low and let the heat die down. But that wasn't Albert Anastasia. Single-minded and power-hungry, he believed he could freely make his next major move even as the feds were investigating him. And this move would be the most important one of his career. 
From 1931 to 1951, Albert Anastasia served as underboss to Vincent Mangano, the head of one of the five families. And for a time, Anastasia carried out his duties as underboss out of respect for Lucky Luciano, his friend and ally who put him there. But he and Mangano had never really liked each other. Mangano thought Anastasia was unstable, and Anastasia thought Mangano was weak. They'd often get into verbal, even physical fights. It was only a matter of time before one of them took the other out. When word got back to Anastasia that Mangano was planning to finally get rid of him, Anastasia knew he needed to hit first. On April 18, 1951, Anastasia allegedly invited Mangano to a warehouse on the outskirts of Brooklyn. What happened next is street legend and has never been confirmed nor denied. But according to some, Mangano walked through the doors and was greeted by the barrel of Anastasia's gun. Knowing he didn't have enough time to draw his own, Mangano welcomed the hit with arms outstretched. He knew his time had come. Vincent Mangano's body was never seen again. When the cops investigated his disappearance, they presumed he was dead. This feeling was only confirmed when a different body was discovered the next day. On April 19th, Vincent's brother, Philip, was found floating in the marshes in Jamaica Bay, shot three times in the face and neck. The police never solved the Mangano murders, but given that he had the most to gain, it was widely assumed that Albert Anastasia was the man behind them. With the Manganos out of the way, 48-year-old Albert Anastasia was now in charge of one of New York's five major crime families. Although he'd already wielded immense power, Anastasia could now flaunt the official title of boss. He answered to no one. Or so he thought. After Philip Mangano's body was found, the commission wanted to bring Anastasia in for an interview. It was against the rules for an underboss to kill his boss without permission, and Anastasia needed to answer for Vincent's disappearance. Standing before them, Anastasia insisted that he wasn't behind their deaths, even though he would have been justified given that Vincent was angling to kill him. Of course, Every one of the other bosses was sure that Anastasia was behind it. And yet, they gave him a pass. Anastasia's main champion was 60-year-old Frank Costello. Costello made sure that the commission confirmed Anastasia's ascension as the new boss. Much of this had to do with Costello wanting an ally against Vito Genovese, a leading figure in the Luciano crime family. There was a growing animosity between the two mobsters, and Costello was determined to come out on top if a full-blown gang war erupted. And so Anastasia and Costello formed a relationship based largely on the need for survival. But neither looked like they would be surviving for long. Fractures within the Mafia, along with a new slew of anti-racketeering efforts, threatened to take both Costello and Anastasia out. With his new status as boss, Anastasia wouldn't go down without a fight. He was determined to take out anything and anyone in his path. 
even with the feds watching his every move. Coming up, Anastasia's battles to keep his place at the top. Before we get back to the show, I have a quick podcast recommendation I think you'll really enjoy. It's an all-new Spotify original from Parcast, and it's called Incredible Feats. Every weekday, comedian Dan Cummins, who you might recognize from the hit podcast Time Suck, explores a true account of physical strength, mental focus, or bizarre behavior. He goes behind the scenes into the achievements of world record holders like Ashrita Furman, who's broken records on every continent, and athletes like Wim Hof, whose training methods allow him to withstand extreme temperatures for hours at a time, and even people like Juliana Kopka, who was forced to survive alone in a rainforest when she was just 17 years old. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. New episodes air Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. The 1950s saw a renewed interest in mob busting with the start of the Kefauver anti-racketeering hearings. But the sudden heat didn't stop 48-year-old Albert Anastasia from achieving his ambitions. One way to get ahead in the Italian mafia was to kill the man above you. Another was to instill fear in all those that surround you. By 1951, Anastasia had accomplished both of those things. Vincent Mangano's murder was both a testament to Anastasia's obsession for power and absurd audacity, especially considering the political limelight that was being shown down on the Mafia at the time. In successfully taking out Mangano, Anastasia was now in charge of one of the five families. By the fall of 1951, Kifava Committee's hearing had come to a close, and their impact was minor at best. What the hearings did do was shine a light on the widespread problem of organized crime. And they even forced FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to admit prior knowledge of the Mafia and that the FBI did little to stop their rise. However, the hearings did result in granting local and state law enforcement permission to aggressively pursue gangsters. And one of the ways to take them down was to go after corrupt cops. Crooked cops were known to be a gangster's best friend, and soon, cases against corrupt cops provided the possibility of toppling the underground system the five families had spent years constructing. After being promoted to boss, Albert Anastasia was asked by fellow boss Frank Costello to suppress, by any means necessary, a burgeoning number of cases against corrupt cops and the Mafia. Anastasia was more than willing to help, especially when it came to rats. In the fall of 1951, 
Anastasia and 57-year-old Guarino Willie Moretti were sent to deliver a package to convicted bookie Harry Gross. In the package was $200,000 in hush money. Gross had been arrested for operating a $20 million a year gambling ring. And apparently, the district attorney's office had recordings of Gross's employees openly discussing bribes to police officers. To save his own neck, Gross agreed to testify. The $200,000 payoff would hopefully ensure Gross's silence. If Gross didn't testify, then the judge presiding over the case might be forced to dismiss the indictments against the corrupt police officers. Unfortunately, the handoff didn't quite go as expected. Details are few and far between, but what we do know was that when the package was delivered, it didn't weigh like it had $200,000 in it. Somebody had stolen from the payoff. To account for the missing amount, Anastasia was brought before the commission. In front of his peers, he claimed he wasn't part of the direct payoff. Moretti was the one who handed the money to Gross. Anastasia then suggested that Moretti wasn't exactly of sound mind. It wasn't impossible to imagine him doing something as reckless as stealing from the mob. Moretti had to go. In October 1951, 48-year-old Anastasia called Moretti and asked that he take him to the hospital. Anastasia had some health problems, so the ask wasn't all that out of the ordinary. After dropping Anastasia off at the hospital, Moretti went to a diner for breakfast. As he was eating, he recognized two men at a nearby booth and reportedly struck up a conversation with them. According to some accounts, when the waitress who was serving them disappeared into the kitchen, things went south. The two men suddenly lifted their guns, shot down Moretti, and fled the diner in a flash. In order to save himself, it appeared that Albert Anastasia was willing to sell out another. Despite riding the high of escaping Moretti's same fate, Anastasia knew trouble was just around the corner. In the year following Moretti's death, things only looked to be getting worse for Anastasia, especially when it came to his legal troubles. Since the Kefauver anti-racketeering hearings had come to a close in 1951, local investigations had been opened up targeting the New York mob. With help from the FBI, the DA's office was going after Anastasia harder than they ever had before. One of the first ways to bring him down was through deportation. Thanks to his brother's testimony, the FBI tried everything to give Anastasia the boot. They even resorted to low-bar tactics like using his birth name, Umberto, on memos to make him sound more foreign. Unfortunately, Anastasia couldn't be deported because he was unwanted. Because of his murderous reputation, the Italian government refused to take him back. The FBI would later drop the deportation angle. The government's next approach was an oldie, but a goodie. It was time to bring in the tax man. Starting in January 1953, the DA's office went after Anastasia for tax evasion. The Fed claimed that Anastasia's Fort Lee mansion, estimated at $125,000, was evidence that he had unreported income. 
They were arguing that there was no way he could afford the house on the salary he reported. They spent the next year trying to find as many people as possible to testify. Eventually, they found a few potential witnesses. Anastasia's bodyguard, Vincent McCree, Benedict McCree, Vincent's brother, and the contractor who'd built the Fort Lee mansion, and a plumber named Charles Ferry. Both of the McCree brothers knew Anastasia's reputation as a killer and likely wanted to put him away before he decided to turn on them too. Charles Ferry was willing to testify for the same reason. He had done $8,700 worth of plumbing work on Anastasia's home, which meant he could provide a direct link to Anastasia's unreported income. In 1954, Ferry testified to a grand jury. And on March 10, 1954, Anastasia was indicted on two counts of tax evasion. He was expected to pay $11,742 in taxes that he had withheld. Knowing he could beat the trumped-up charges in court, Anastasia turned himself in and got out on $10,000 bail. According to Anastasia's accountant, Anastasia had made around $5,960 in 1947 and paid $789 in taxes. But the government claimed those figures should actually be $25,728 and $8,930, respectively. They alleged that Anastasia was failing to report the profits he made from his rackets whereas Anastasia claimed that all his income came from his Madison Dress Company out in Pennsylvania. Which everyone knew was blatantly false given his history on the docks. And of course, there were potentially three witnesses who could testify that Anastasia had more money than he was letting on. But not for long. In April of 1954, Vincent McCree was found in the trunk of an abandoned car. He'd been dead for days. Police found a little black book that Vincent kept with the names of the men he worked for, a good number of whom were mobsters. One name that came up was, of course, Albert Anastasia. Word on the street was that Anastasia had been behind the hit. Unfortunately, there was no evidence to go after him. Anastasia was on house arrest, and they couldn't find any other triggerman. Not long after Vincent McCree was found, his brother Benedict suddenly disappeared. The McCree brothers' case was looking a lot like the Mongano brothers. One found dead, one disappeared forever. With two rats out of the way, Anastasia felt more confident than ever that if he could get away with murder, he could get away with anything. But the feds were determined. They may have lost two witnesses, but they still had Charles Ferry. And in the fall of 1954, they were going to make sure that Ferry helped put Albert Anastasia away for good. October 19th saw the start of 52-year-old Albert Anastasia's tax evasion trial. Over the next several weeks, it came to light that Anastasia used his wife as his legal shield. The house was in her name, and her name was used to pay off the contractors. As a result, the jury was deadlocked, and in November 1954, 
a mistrial was declared. If Anastasia thought he was finally in the clear, he was wrong. A new trial was scheduled for the following spring. Except there was one major blow dealt to the feds. Their last witness, Charles Ferry, and his wife were missing. Fearing retribution from Albert Anastasia, the Ferries had moved to Florida to get as far away from New Jersey as possible. They'd hoped that by putting distance between themselves and the Mafia boss, they could leave all this dangerous business behind them. Instead, the Mafia came for them. In late April 1955, Ferry's son-in-law went to check on their house and discovered blood all over the floors and walls, but no bodies. Cops scoured the scene and the surrounding area, and they couldn't find one clue leading to their presumably dead couple. Ferry's disappearance was all over the press. Their story, the McCree brothers' story, and the tax evasion trials all appeared to connect back to Anastasia. And yet, Anastasia himself didn't seem bothered by his name showing up in the headlines. In fact, he was more confident that in no time at all, he would be back in business, running his rackets. Except, the commission was becoming worried by the bad press. Anastasia's actions put them under the microscope. Soon, discussions were being made as to what to do about this annoying problem. Almost every one of the bosses was in agreement. Albert Anastasia had to go. Coming up, Anastasia meets his own bloody end. Now, back to the story. 52-year-old Albert Anastasia had always been a vengeful man. But in the 1950s, with the murder of Mafia boss Vincent Mangano, he took his bloodlust to a whole other level, and it clouded his judgment. As a testament to his recklessness, three potential witnesses in his tax evasion trial were all assumed dead. The feds were sure that Anastasia had something to do with them, but they couldn't prove he ordered the hit. Still, this uptick in violence put an unwanted spotlight on the mob. With the news of the McCree murders and ferry disappearances circulating all across the US, Albert Anastasia's name was making waves, not only on a public scale, but also privately, within the world of organized crime. New York bosses were uneasy about keeping Anastasia within their ranks. One member of the Mafia in particular, Vito Genovese, seemed to be the most eager to get rid of him. So much so that around the spring of 1955, Genovese allegedly went to the commission to talk about taking out Anastasia. Normally, it was against the rules to place a hit on a boss. But Anastasia himself had broken that rule when he had taken out the Mangano brothers four years earlier. No hit was ordered against Anastasia, but the seed was planted to try and find a way to wipe him off the map. While trouble was brewing behind Anastasia's back, his issues with the feds were looking up. In the summer of 1955, Anastasia accepted a deal for tax evasion. Despite all the supposed work he had put into suppressing the witnesses, Anastasia was forced into a guilty plea. 
Some historians suggest that someone in the commission asked that he cut a deal in order to appease the other mob bosses. Instead of killing him, they wanted him locked up. Whatever his reasoning was, Anastasia pleaded guilty to two counts of income tax evasion. On June 3, 1955, he was sentenced to one year in the federal penitentiary in Milan, Michigan. It felt like a small enough punishment that he didn't mind the time. But what he did mind was having to cough up cash. The court had also ordered that he pay a fine of $20,000 to the IRS. With Anastasia out of the public eye, calls to kill him were apparently silenced within the Mafia. All seemed willing to give Anastasia room to breathe while he sat in his cell up in Michigan. Anastasia was released from prison on March 28, 1956. For about a year afterwards, he managed to keep his head down and his nose out of trouble. But in true Anastasia fashion, a violent incident refocused everyone's attention back onto him. In June of 1957, 54-year-old Albert Anastasia allegedly went to the commission to ask about killing his own underboss, Francesco Wacky Scalise. Why exactly Anastasia wanted his own number two dead remains something of a mystery. According to one story, when Anastasia's brother Joseph died, Scalise was the only one who didn't pay his respects at the funeral. Joseph's funeral was grand to the umpteenth degree. Everyone had showed up and offered their condolences, dressed in fedoras, handkerchiefs and all. But Scalise supposedly wasn't there, and Anastasia wanted him gone. The commission granted Anastasia's request, and it set off a chain reaction of violence. Scalise was murdered later that June. At the funeral, his brother, Joe Scalise, passionately vowed to get revenge, believing Anastasia was responsible. But three months later, Joe Scalise was invited to a party with fellow mobsters, men he considered friends. As the story goes, the moment he opened the door, they descended on him with knives. Some say the order came directly from Anastasia, but no one really knows. After Scalise's death, Anastasia welcomed a new underboss, the young and hungry Carlo Gambino. As soon as Gambino was ushered in as underboss, he started biding his time to make himself boss. He knew that an opportunity would soon come. Anastasia was angering so many people, it was only a matter of time. In the fall of 1957, the feds renewed their efforts to put Anastasia behind bars permanently, first through taxes again, and then by racketeering. Even though he'd spent a year in prison, he still owed the IRS money. Around the exact same time that the Treasury was hassling for their money, the FBI brought Anastasia in for questioning in regards to a racketeering investigation. It's unlikely Anastasia gave them anything, because on his way out of the interview, he bragged that, nobody's got nothing on me, I'll die in bed. He couldn't have been more wrong. Over the next couple of weeks, 
Calls for getting rid of Anastasia increased within the mob as well. The sudden return of the legal spotlight on him made absolutely everyone nervous, and Anastasia proving that he was no longer worth the trouble. Once again, Vito Genovese led the crusade to get rid of Anastasia, and he found a new ally in Carlo Gambino, Anastasia's number two. Their argument was simple. The time to get rid of Anastasia was now. On October 25, 1957, 55-year-old Albert Anastasia entered Grasso's Barbershop at the Park Sheraton Hotel. Located on 7th Avenue and 55th Street, it had become Anastasia's favorite spot for a trim. With him was his godson, Vince Guilante, a Long Island trash racketeer. Not with him was Anthony Coppola, Anastasia's bodyguard. He was too busy parking the car. Anastasia made his way to his favorite chair, lucky number four. Once he took his seat, he let the barber put a hot towel on his face. At 10.18 a.m., four men arrived at the Park Sheraton. Two stood and watched the entrances, while the other two went inside. With his face wrapped in a hot towel, Anastasia was completely unaware of the men walking towards him with their guns drawn. At close range, the two men fired 10 shots. As soon as Anastasia felt the first bullet hit his body, he reportedly tore off his towel and tried to get away. But they quickly overpowered him. Vince Squillante shivered in a corner as he watched his godfather meet the same violent fate he himself had doled out so many times. Albert Anastasia was dead. None of his assassins were ever apprehended. Over the years, there's been a great deal of speculation about who killed the mob's top killer. Many thought that Vito Genovese and Carlo Gambino had ordered the hit. The theory makes sense. With Anastasia's downfall, Carlo Gambino took over as boss, and the Anastasia family became the Gambino family. There was no doubt that Carlo benefited most from Anastasia's death. Still, other crime families have also been linked back to the murder. By 1957, Anastasia wasn't well-liked. Anyone could have done the deed. Albert Anastasia's murder was the biggest mob hit in nearly 30 years. The picture of his dead body became the stuff of mob law. Reporters were able to snap several photos before cops arrived and covered Anastasia up. Anastasia's funeral was a quiet affair. He was lowered into the ground on October 28, 1957, by his brother Salvatore, the only Anastasia who hadn't chosen a life of crime. Sal spoke about how devoted Albert was to his family and how much his older brother loved Parcheesi. What he failed to mention, of course, was Murder, Inc., or the Mafia. But history won't forget. Albert Anastasia was perhaps the deadliest killer in Mafia history. While some accounts place the number of hits he ordered around 60, that number is likely much higher. Albert Anastasia had maimed, killed, and disappeared so many over the years. And yet, despite such a high body count, 
he didn't spend more than five years behind bars. Instead, he died violently at the hands of the mob he had bloodily served for over 30 years. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. For more information on Albert Anastasia, amongst the many sources we used, we found Frank DiMatteo and Michael Benson's Lord High Executioner extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Justine Bede, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. Listeners, you don't want to miss Incredible Feats, the all-new Spotify original from Parcast. Host Dan Cummins free-falls straight into the weirdest, wildest achievements of all time. New episodes air every weekday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.